The truth is, even without looking at your calendar, you know it's March. You don't even actually have to look out the window. That is because our televisions are filled with commercials of warm beaches, palm trees, and happy people. Deep in the, in the dregs of winter, they know well what people are prepared to give up in order to escape this. But when you arrive to wherever it is that you've booked yourself to go, you see things that the commercial or the Google ads never show. The beaches are crowded. There are lines to get drinks. Your email inbox still fills up, and your children tell you that they're bored. But you're not alone in that when you travel that you're followed with this nagging kind of anxiety that you were excited to leave, but you can't wait to get back. Because Einstein once wrote that the best part of traveling is actually just leaving. But there's something else about traveling that we don't take into account. Because after you have booked your tickets and reserved the hotel, after you have packed your bags and head off to the airport, you have to remember that you are also going along on the trip. Which means that there isn't a different person who shows up to gate D69 to Fort Lauderdale. It's you. That despite all the marketing, people don't change when they travel. We are there what we are here. And I'm speaking from experience. I just came back from a few weeks in Los Angeles, and yes, I walked the beautiful beaches, went to the piers, but within a few days before leaving, we went to the Simon Wiesenthal Center of the Museum of Tolerance. And at some point, I don't remember exactly when, I said to myself that on a strikingly beautiful day in Southern California, I'm in a Holocaust museum. And that's because we don't change. We are what we are no matter where we are. And while there, I noticed something that in over 45 years of walking the halls of Holocaust museums throughout the world, of having read dozens of books and survivor testimonies, I noticed something that I never recognized before. And I don't know what exactly triggered it. Maybe having been to just to Yad Vashem a few months before, and now here in the Wiesenthal Center. Because you see, that in the world of the Holocaust survivor testimonials, there are only two languages and two languages alone that they are given in. There are testimonies in English and there are testimonies in Hebrew. And that is because when the Shoah's murderous dust cloud settled, there were really only two places, for the most part, that Jews would go to, either to North America or to Israel, to build their new lives. And what occurred to me is how different the Hebrew testimonies are from the English ones. The 19th century German philosopher Wittgenstein once said that the limits of language is the limits of the world, which is to say that language is a world unto itself. And if that is true, then these survivor testimonies in these two different languages show us two entirely different worlds. And perhaps it's not surprising to us because Judaism is very good at holding different worlds. You know, it's not very often that an example of what you're trying to say is literally staring at you, but today it kind of is. Within this coming month, two worlds are going to parade before our eyes as a signpost to our most pressing question. 
This week we will celebrate the holiday of Purim, which is best known for its costumes, its drinking, and its parties. But a much lesser known idea is that Purim is actually the end of the Jewish holiday calendar. And I know what you're thinking, but Rabbi, isn't Rosh Hashanah our new year? And it is and it isn't. While the annual calendar is refreshed with Rosh Hashanah, the Torah, the Bible cycle of Jewish holidays, begins from Passover, which makes enormous sense. Because after all, isn't that the story where we begin our story? And if there is no exodus, then there is nothing else. The Israelites never become the Jewish people, and we are not here, and there is no this. And since Pesach is the beginning of the Jewish holiday story, then the end is Purim. Because Purim is always 30 days before Passover begins and finds itself as the bookend to the year. We start with Passover, we end with Purim, which is the story of two worlds which could not be further apart from one another. And as it's been recorded in movies and in books, Pesach is the story of God in miraculous intervention in this world. In fact, God stops at nothing to draw the Israelites out of Egypt. There are plagues and there are miracles. There is parted water from the beginning with a burning bush that is never consumed by the fire to the world's most powerful empire being brought to its knees. It seems that God is everywhere in the story of the Exodus at our beck and call to make sure that freedom will happen. And the story of the Exodus is as much a story of the Jews being liberated as it is the story of God making sure that it will happen. But if Passover, if Pesach is the story of God intervening in this world, of God literally painted from pillar to post, the story of Purim, the ancient Persian empire is readying itself to murder its Jews, we hear nothing about God. In fact, of all the 24 books that comprise and fill the Hebrew Bible, the book of Esther, which tells the story of Purim, doesn't mention God's name even once. Nowhere in the entire telling of the story do we hear God's name spoken. Nowhere do we hear that God is prayed to or begged for by name. In the moment of their maximum danger, when the world's largest Jewish population finds itself under the sword in the world's largest empire, seemingly God is nowhere to be found. And in doing so, the question is thrown at your feet. What kind of world do you live in? Is it the world of Pesach of Passover, where plagues rain down from heaven and miracles tilt the world in your favor? Or the world of Purim, where abandoned and threatened the Jews are the architects of their own salvation? If God is the story of Pesach, then we are the story of Purim. The ancient rabbis were deeply torn over whether or not to include the book of Esther in the Hebrew Bible altogether. After all, how can you have a biblical book without God's name in it? But the temptation to cast it aside was dismissed because the weight of Purim's message was perhaps the greatest miracle of all. Because the Jews of Purim make their own miracles. You see, what I realized when I walked out of the museum on that sunny day in Los Angeles, is how different what the survivors say in English and in Hebrew. Along the museum walls 
were plaques upon plaques of English quotes from the survivors. And overwhelmingly, you find that the English testimoni testimonials speak about the failure of love and the need for love. They speak about the failure of humans to care for each other. In their English language testimonies, they call for tolerance and understanding amongst all people. You hear their prayers that the world will learn from the Holocaust in order to, to avoid repeating its horror, not just for Jews, but for all people. But the Hebrew language testimonies are held in Israel's National Holocaust Museum, the Yad Vashem. They make up the overwhelming majority of them there. The Hebrew testimonies reveal a painful conversation that is meant only for us. They were spoken in the expectation because they are said in Hebrew that their words would only be heard by Jews. In the Hebrew testimonies we hear of the pain of what happened and didn't happen to them and their families. In the Hebrew testimonies we hear of their anger of what they thought the world was and what they learned it actually to have been. In the Hebrew testimonies we hear what it was like to live in a time and place where the language that you spoke and the schools that they went to and the police that they trusted and the courts that they relied on and the doctors who had cared for them and the neighbors who they had sought help from and the values that they believed in, how each and every one of them in time would turn their back against them. And when it was all taken away, when it was all gone, they were left alone, afraid, and exposed to the elements that would come their way. But in one way or another, nearly every one of those Hebrew testimonials also tells us of the aftermath, how despite everything, they climbed aboard boats and trains and carriages and horses, legally and illegally, to find their way to Israel. Once there, they would fight to establish a country Many whose spouses and children were torn and murdered before their eyes would marry and have more children. They would raise homes, start businesses, build cities, and lift the country on their shoulder, a country which, despite the profound challenges it faces, continues to be a miracle. And how did they do this? It is Purim's story told over and over again. You could ask, that if God doesn't save us, then what's the point of religion? But faith, real faith, cannot be about making or changing God to what we want. Real faith is about changing us. That faith in God inspires us to find the courage to face loss and find strength to build once again. Real faith teaches us that God is not here to save us, that God is here to give us the strength to save ourselves. That God isn't here to make sick people healthy, to save people in distress, to feed the hungry or cure the poor or clothe the poor. God is here to make us brave enough to face our challenges, which is shown in this small story. In 1956, in the Israeli town of Kfar Chabad, which is some 20 kilometers south of Tel Aviv, five students were murdered in a terrorist attack and distraught by the bloodshed, the residents of the town, mostly religious immigrants from Russia, 
were in a state of fear and despair. They sent a letter off to their rabbi asking what they should do. Four days after the tragedy, a telegram arrives from America and the nude is spread out throughout the village. An answer has arrived. And men, women, and children that evening assemble in the village to hear it. And the reply was a single sentence, just three Hebrew words. By your building, you will be comforted. That very night, the village held a meeting to discuss how this directive might be manifested. And after a short discussion, the decision was reached that a vocational school would be built where children from disadvantaged backgrounds would be taught the printing trade, saying that on the very spot where blood was spilled, the building would be raised. This, of course, continues to always be our answer. Shabbat Shalom.